0: Welcome to this week's episode of Flight Toot Friday. Nathan Shakespeare with me as usual is Sam Hafensteiner. This week we're going to be talking about the Humboldt rescue on the six five six one from September two thousand nineteen. A uh, pretty crazy rescue with the U.S. Forest Service uh, crew out there was able to medevac two injured firefighters and get them to safety. Uh, we got a lot of content here, so uh, we're actually broken up into two parts, and uh, we'll just get right into it with part one.
1: Alright guys, good afternoon. I guess it's good evening out here. Probably afternoon still there. So this is Sam Haffensteiner with me, Nate Shakespeare. Uh, you guys just want to quickly say who's on the other end of the line here?
2: Yep, uh, Lieutenant Commander Derek Schmell, Lieutenant Junior Grade, Adam Ownby. AS2 Graham McGinnis. AMT
3: 2 Tyler Cook.
1: Alright, cool guys. Um, well, we uh, thought we'd start the segment off with a little bit of uh, beverage talk here as we... Uh, discuss your story. So I'll just, I'll just go with mine. So I'm drinking a old majestic. Uh looks like a blonde ale. R- Thank you, Ryan. Uh, come from uh, here in Mobile, Alabama brewing company. You guys drinking anything fun out there? I know Derek, you're on duty tonight.
2: Uh, tonight, this evening we are enjoying uh Humboldt County, California zone mad river brewing steelhead, extra pale ale.
0: Glad you're drinking the beer, not trying the other stuff out of Humboldt.
2: <laughs> hey,
4: <laughs>
0: the uh, first
4: we've heard of that one. <laughs> yeah,
0: never heard
1: that one before. Um hey Derek, let's let's start with you. What's your background, man?
4: Uh so yeah, I'm on my third tour, actually on an extension here in Hubble Bay. So uh end in the near of my third tour, aviation tour, anyways. Uh started out in Los Angeles
5: before it closed down, then went to uh Hitron and here.
1: Awesome. What about you, Adam?
5: Uh, I was a non on Coast Guard Cutter-Bowell, in, uh, three years on that, uh, AMT in New Orleans, and then got picked up for OCS, went that route straight from OCS, went to flight school, and then this is my first uh,
0: pilot tour. That's right. It, you were right out, out of the course, right, uh, during this case?
5: Yeah, so the case was my first SAR case as a pilot, actually first aviation SAR case,
0: so. Not the first duty, but first case, like, shortly after first getting back to the case, course.
5: Yeah, first, first uh, actual voice and whatnot.
1: Nice. Nice. Graham, tell us about yourself, man.
5: Uh, I've
2: got 12 years in. Uh, my first first tour was at the illustrious Cape May Gymnasium at their boot camp as a non-rate.
1: Fantastic. Uh,
2: yeah. I spent a little time at, uh, also at Station Cape May uh, as a an non-rate, and... Then uh, went to AST school, went to New Orleans for almost six years, and then came here and and am on my second year here.
0: That's awesome. Uh, Cape May is super sought after right after graduating from Cape May. Is that right?
2: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Everyone can't wait to come back.
0: Yeah, I
1: bet. That's awesome. Uh, And uh, last but not least, Tyler, uh, uh, is this your first? First air station?
3: Yeah, it is. Uh, I was in Chesapeake, Virginia with ComCom as an on-rate for three years. Went to AMTA school, and then here I am on an extension out at Humboldt.
0: Got about six years in now. That's awesome. And it was your first case as well, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, it was. (laughs) Definitely uh, a real one for sure.
0: Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Similar, um, did you and Adam get there about the same time?
3: No, I, this is, yeah, I got here around the same time as Mr.
0: Chamel. Oh, nice, nice. Okay, so just took a little bit in Sleepy Humboldt to get a, uh, a case, but it was a good one. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, just so,
1: before we start diving in, just like the overview of this case, um, you guys went up into the Trinity Alps and, and rescued two firefighters uh, in the middle of a forest fire. That's That's what it pretty much boils down to? Pretty much. All right. Well. Let's uh, let's dive in. Tell us about that duty night. Like, where where did it start? Had
0: you had ice cream yet? Or yeah,
4: <laughs> <laughs> no. We it uh, actually I think a Thursday night duty uh, here. So we had a it's just a night hoisting flight um, training flight that we had just landed from. And I I saw him followed up with uh, one of our uh, he's departed now, but one of the container deck, as I was finishing up all this. He's like, hey my friend just called and said, you guys might be going on a case. And, uh, I hadn't heard anything yet. So I kind of walked over to the command center and, uh, on my way to the command center, they piped us um, to come over for a possible medevac. Uh, so we all kind of started heading over there uh, to get some information and, um, uh, just kind of start planning it all. And then, uh, we got to the command center and it was, uh, not great details. Um, uh, which can kind of be the case with a lot of our interagency stuff, because um, they were working through several people, so they actually you know, could talk to somebody on the ground there. So the details of uh, the, the survivors or the um, firefighters was not great. Uh, we just knew, knew, basically knew that two of them were, were hurt. Um, one of them had a leg injury and one of them had a neck injury, um, but we didn't really know the extent of it right off the bat. Um, so we kind of started talking to our ops box and things weren't looking too good for us uh, risk versus gain-wise for them to approve uh, of us launching out there at that point. Um, It actually took uh, Commander Hillary, who was our ops boss at the time, and he got, I think, a number for the uh, dispatcher that was talking to the incident commander on scene and finally got some good details for us uh, that they had both been hit by a car battery-sized boulder that had uh, rolled down the hill. Um, I think it hit the first guy in the leg, um, broke his femur, and then uh, hit the second guy. He tried to turn away from it, hit him in the back and in the back of the head, and uh, I think knocked him him unconscious. And the the one with the broken leg, I think, was the one showing signs of shock at that point. Uh, So once we got that info, um, the game definitely started going up for us quite a bit. Uh, Risk was definitely high. Um, They didn't have too good of a We had a position, but, um, and uh, Ryan can attest to this, that the Trinity Alps, like, you know, a change in 50 feet laterally could be 2,000 feet of elevation change in the Trinity Alps. It's that steep. So um, we didn't really know, have any idea of the the altitude or elevation that the uh, case was going to be at. Um, We just kind of knew about where it was and kind of the general terrain of it uh, from looking on for flight.
1: Yeah. Uh, So we started... Uh, sorry. Let me yeah, let me interrupt you real quick, Derek. Just so that uh, if our listeners are following on four flight, like you, you guys are out of McKinleyville, right, at the Airstay, and and were you? I'm seeing Weaverville. Is that kind of where you were, or just north of Weaverville, up in the Trinity Alps?
4: Yeah, I think we were just northwest of Weaverville. If you look on uh, four flight and find uh, Dedrick, yeah, if you see a tiny little town called Dedrick west of Weaverville, we were close to that. The okay. valley directly north of there, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, so, yeah, so from that point, we were kind of uh, uh, the, uh, our ops is I think, was calling um, Captain Schlegel, was uh, taking our CO calls at the time. So, they were, I think, uh, talking uh, amongst themselves as well as the Admiral down at D11, uh, just because it was going to be a high risk case. Um, but as a crew, we were kind of trying to come up with a plan. I mean, obviously, this was vastly out of our realm of experience so um we were trying to think of anything we could i think graham at that point had mentioned uh starting to take stuff out of the plane i was reluctant and you know this is one of things i think back back on and regret i was reluctant because i didn't at this point i wasn't uh i didn't know we were going to pretty much commit ourselves uh, for the rest of our duty day to be inland so i didn't want to completely desart our plane in case, you know, something came up later in the night offshore somewhere that we got diverted from or something like that. So that's definitely a decision I regret um, now, but uh, we did talk about that. Uh, Tyler and Graham uh, talked about bringing extra trail lines, uh, weight bags, that sort of thing, was definitely proved to be uh, vital to the success of the uh, mission. Uh, but yeah, we, I think we originally assessed our risk as medium as a crew just because uh, we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into at that point. Right. Um, but behind the scenes, Commander Hillary uh, was definitely, in his mind, assassinated as a high-risk mission. Um, but they did uh, give us uh, the green light to uh, go launch on it, and uh, kind of made our way to the plane and um, got ready to go. Yeah, that's Bear awesome.
0: Up. Yeah, do you guys have any experience flying out there? Have the crew, have you guys flown in the mountains out there?
5: So it's a... I, we frequently fly the general area, but never at night and uh, not this exact location. Um, kind of. I we, say, yeah. we fly over the area during the day on because It's a great place
0: to do
1: sightseeing. Yeah. It's beautiful up there.
0: <laughs> when there's no forest fires.
1: When there's no forest fires. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. What, what else were you guys thinking getting ready to go? It sounds like uh, talked about DSAR in the plane kind of, or like, kind of missionizing it for, for the mission you're trying to do, add a little extra gear. Uh, anything else you guys are thinking about?
5: I ran some numbers uh, for our Todd data. Um, we really we took the uh, GPS position they had given us and plugged it into Google Maps, honestly. They have the terrain feature on Google Maps to kind of get a ballpark of uh, elevation. Um, I had never – we always talk about, you know, what we do for a Todd cards. Uh, for different situations and uh, I knew that it popped out the no data for the torque numbers for anything above a couple thousand feet. So I knew those numbers weren't really any good. Um, I think the one thing that ended up being money for uh, planning purposes was the weight to hover out of ground effect with a 10% torque margin. Ended up being pretty spot on and uh, made it easy for, you know, fuel planning. Um so I think that was the one number that kind of looked at, but that was really yeah,
0: where I went. So. We're trying to follow along at home here. It sounds like um, it's it's like maybe 50 miles to the east. So it's not not necessarily a ton of gas to get there. And like, it, it sounds like the airports in the area, you have fuel available. So you don't necessarily need a ton of gas for the transit, just for the work.
5: Correct. Yeah. Um, and it, so the, the point on the map also it was about 5,500 feet or so. Um, so yeah, I think it wasn't so much getting there with enough gas. It was to be at the correct hoagie weight, you know, was our real challenge that we were looking at initially.
1: Yeah. Um, Tyler, what was going through your head, man? It's your first case as a, uh, as a mech.
5: Oh man.
3: Um, my mind was running, you know, but, uh, we had a job to do. So I was just trying to stay in the game, get everything ready, pre flight the plane, get it outside, get everything that we need, grab extra trail lines, grab chem lights, whatever I thought that we could possibly need. I was just making sure that we had it. Yeah. Uh, you know, grabbing MVGs and stuff like that. But of course, we had zero moonlight. So MVGs were kind of here and there. But uh, yeah, just, I guess, nerves. If anything.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I'm assuming uh, you guys have a pretty robust uh, vert surface program out there in Humboldt, don't you?
3: Oh, yeah, for sure. It's uh, definitely, we've got some really solid training spots for uh, our vertical surface practicing. So, I mean, we get plenty of, I wouldn't say we get plenty of practice, but we definitely practice very well.
1: Yeah.
0: That's awesome. I don't want to like put the cart before the horse too much, but um, do you guys get to do much uh, like pretty high, uh, like long cable length vertical hoist in in your training program or not necessarily?
3: No, nothing at all. I think our first, our longest might be down at and It's maybe a hundred feet. Okay. That's that's pretty
0: good. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Yeah, That's that's about the only thing that can help you out, but it's more or less a steep slope. It's uh, not really any kind of super bad
1: terrain. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, we heard from everybody except you, Graham. Um, I mean, you're the guy who's going down on the hook. What were you thinking? I mean, you, you already mentioned, uh, Hey, let's, let's strip the aircraft if we can. What else? Anything else?
3: Yeah. So,
2: well, that idea mainly came from, uh, it just kind of crossed my mind through some stuff that I had seen in the Gulf during hurricane operations. Uh, a lot of, a lot of times we, would see folks, you know, just kind of come to the realization. Oh man, we don't need to have half this stuff on here. And uh, and you know, what can we take off? So that's kind of where that idea came from. Uh, during the initial call, the things I was starting to think about. Actually, Mister Schmel was like Graham. You know, what do you what do you want to wear? And I told, and I was, I was, uh, I was brand spanking new to the unit. Um, I'd only been here for a couple months. And my inland SAR gear had just shown up that night. I literally, <laughs> like, before the flight, I was like a kid, you know, at the candy, like, basically Christmas morning. Oh, yeah. Opening up all these boxes with just this fresh-smelling SAR gear, you know, new jackets and shoes and boots. So, uh, Watch, pretty, probably. So- <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah,
2: right. And then, so, you know, I, we get this call, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm wearing the inland SAR gear. Like, that's happening. Oh, yeah. So. Nice got to bust out that fresh Arcteric jacket. Nice. Uh, so I started thinking about that kind of stuff, like, you know, what's what's appropriate to wear? I mean, we're going to respond to a uh, to a fire, so I'm not trying to go in a dry suit. But the same thing was, was being said, like Mr. Schmel said earlier, we really didn't know where this was going to go. The whole intention upon launch was that we were really just going to go look at it and see if there was something we could do. Because uh, kind of the information we're getting was, Spotty and the conditions weren't great, so really our whole intention was we were going to go take a look at it and see if this was even feasible. So, the the fact that we left in dry suits just kind of like, you know, well, yeah, exactly. Like it just kind of it kind of reinforces the fact that like we really didn't think that we were going to be doing this all night and that we'd really be committing to it. We we thought we'd be coming back here at some point and having to stand duty ready for offshore stuff. So my mind was in that set. Like we're not necessarily like
0: talking to the flight surgeon about like the injuries in like uh, a ton of detail. You're like, well, I wonder if we're ever going to like do anything other than fly over.
2: Well, no, we no for sure. We, we did do that. As a matter of fact, like one of the first things we did when we got in, uh, into the comms room is because there wasn't a lot of uh, information. One of the first things that I asked for was that we start getting one of the OS's to get the flight surgeon on the, on the phone, because as soon as I heard that it, you know, once we got confirmation of it was a femur injury, you know, my, as you know, EMT skills kicked in and I was like, man, that's for sure a life threatening, you know, injury. Mm-hmm. You know you can, you can bleed your entire body's volume of blood into the cavity of your femur. Um, you know, if you nick an artery in there, so you can bleed out and never see a drop of blood on the ground. So that was concerning to me. So that kind of was part of the big push that we gave to the command, um, was that, you know, although it just sounds like a leg injury and maybe a guy got knocked in the head like this, you know, the, the concerns for real life threatening injuries are real. So that, that definitely helped the push.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do, do the swimmer shops typically have any extra medical equipment or anything, or we just got the same old bag for every case.
2: So that kind of, is, that's going to be unit dependent. Um, a lot of medevac heavy units, like I, I can only speak from the experience in New Orleans, but medivacs are almost every other day there. So our EMT training and our EMT tool bag, you know, is a a little more expanded than other units. Um, units where you don't see a lot of it, there is extra gear that we keep. Um, and you just kind of, you kind of have to ask for it or know the situations where that's going to be appropriate. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Sweet. Well, I I mean, Um, we, we definitely built it up, uh, Let's let's get into it. So you guys took off. and Then what?
4: Yeah, just sorry. I'm gonna uh, just kind of cover one more thing. Um, so yeah, just on the medevac issue. Uh, once Commander Hillary called and was actually get uh, more straight communication with the incident commander, um, and you found out the guys were like inside the fire, um, the fire line, pretty much, and non ambulatory. That's when we kind of switched gears from medevac to SAR. Um, and we didn't wait for a, uh, flight surgeon recommendation or anything. We just kind of hit the road at that point. Um, and yeah, so we took off, uh, we initially filed because it was like quarter mile and overcast at 200, pretty typical for Humboldt. Sounds Um, beautiful. We walked to the, walked to the plane. We could see, um, luckily the fog only covered about three quarters of the airfield. We could see the mountains to the east. Uh, so we just, uh, special VFR out of here, um, to the east over the mountains. And started heading out there. And our original plan was there was two uh, Reach uh, EMS helicopters that were on deck in Grand Junction, I think, is the little town, yep. um, just south of where uh, the fire was. And they they were originally called to try and get these guys, but there was no landing zone, and uh, the only um, the only thing we had was uh was about a 20 by 30 foot uh, clearing that the firefighters had cut trees down with their chainsaws for us to hoist to. So the Reach helicopters their intent was to stand um, Grand Junction. And then once we would pull each guy up one by one, we would deliver them to the reach helicopters mm-hmm. about five miles away. Oh, nice. um,
0: so the firefighters actually, they, they anticipated this as a medevac and they cut down some trees to make some room for you guys to work.
4: Yep, exactly. Um, just, yeah, they didn't, there was no other option really for them to hike the guys out. Um, they were both at this point, both on uh, makeshift backboards, um, and just due to the terrain, they couldn't hike them out. It was about a two-mile hike, and uh, terrain was so steep. that. And we'll kind of touch on that later. But, uh, yeah, we ended up kind of being their only option. Um, but, yeah, we were flying out there. And, and once we got away from the fog here, it was not too bad. Uh, we kind of climbed up to, like, six or 7,000 feet to uh, get over all the mountains. And we just kind of, as a crew, were trying to, like, game plan any option we could think of, like, I think our hoist brief was like 20 or 30 minutes. Well, not that long because it didn't take that long to get there, but a solid 15 minutes long just trying to think of different uh, scenarios and stuff like that and what we might have to do, which none of those scenarios proved to be <laughs> anyway, <laughs> what we thought. Right. But anyways, we were talking as a crew, which is the important thing. Um, but yeah, we're flying out there, and I'd say like halfway probably. Um, uh, we were on NBGs at that point, and you just kind of saw this big, big glow you know um off the horizon of you know this mountain on fire in front of us and uh so we flew towards that because uh, we knew it was uh where the fire was is where the guys were so it was pretty not a whole lot of searching going involved at this point um but we got closer uh started descending down and then uh kind of the, there was one big ridge in front of us that we uh had to go around we went to the right of it and then turned up the uh the canyon towards where uh, the position was. And that's, I know, when, you know, my stomach kind of sank, was looking up this canyon at just a whole ridge on fire. And uh, at that point, like immediately upon entering that canyon, uh, the MBG started blurring out a lot. And it was like every visual illusion I'd ever looked at in those ITWs that we we do every year was like immediately a factor. Um, I was struggling just with basic air work. Uh, Adam, the left seat, was having to correct me the whole time because it was just hard hard to tell where the horizon was with zero illumination and then a bright fire that's blurring the goggles out. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I know my confidence
0: greatly dropped at that point, and we haven't even found the firefighters yet. And this is like Um, like 11 o'clock or 11.30 or something. It's pretty late at night, isn't it? Yeah, so I think we
4: took off at 11.57.
0: No. (laughs) I I don't know.
4: (laughs) We yeah, landed so from long our long training flight around 10. I want to say it was a little over an hour after that that we took off. Oh, nice. Um, so, you guys so, yeah, okay. we had 2, 2.0 on us before we took off um, just in the training flight. And then uh, you
5: guys got anything for our in route? So, yeah, just like what he said, just like the uh, all the night things that we talked about. I can't remember the acronym right now, but all of those things were – like oh yeah these are all things we could practice a whole lot more because it it makes a lot of sense now looking at it i remember turning left up into that canyon and like it was it was just a very large area that i really had no idea how how large it was it's about three miles wide ridge to ridge but it didn't leave a whole lot of room for uh, maneuvering inside of it so i don't want to say like i was hoping we weren't going to hit anything i was very confident we all those nice things that we learned to uh you know size distance right yeah, yeah of lack stuff. of uh uh detail all those things
1: yeah um for they uh, do
5: help they do help for sure
1: and, and then for but some visual perspective guys real, real quick uh it is a north south facing canyon is that where we're in
5: correct okay. yeah i want Okay. I want to say it's like if you want to plug it in, forty degrees, fifty four minutes, and one twenty three west. Wow! I looked it up yesterday. <laughs> or, I was looking at it, but right. for the record, he
2: has nothing in front of him. There is, yeah. there is no paper. There is no EFB. Weird flex, but he just rattled that off for
5: you. <laughs> right. But yeah, so it's on. It's on the
1: seared you know, into your east memory side
5: of that canyon. Okay, uh, east side, about halfway up the ridge. So, like,
1: okay. awesome. Uh, I don't know what you guys think in the back Tyler could you see anything
3: (laughs) Not really I was constantly Jumping back and forth from NVGs to no NVGs just Due to exactly What they were talking about there was A lot of different stuff going on visually Just between the fire and then the utter Darkness on the other side so uh, Whenever we got close I took off off my NVGs Because we started doing this circular route Just looking for these guys to see where they were and so whenever we would get close they said that they were shining a flashlight up at us so honestly we were so close to the fire it was hard to distinguish what it was on NVGs or where it was so i was taking off my NVGs and looking the fire line and looking a little bit further down from the fire line and i mean but whenever we turned away from that fire it was terrifying because on NVGs you saw a ridge there but if you took them off it was it was black you couldn't see anything that's crazy
0: yeah How, talk to me about comms do you guys have good comms in the mountains in humboldt or um like in michigan when i was at traverse when it was a 65 unit we had like 800 megahertz and it worked phenomenally with all the state folks and local and uh i imagine that's not necessarily the case you probably don't have good comms with like sector or them or, or what do you have
5: so we uh we did have comms with the uh, incident commander on the ground. We were able to talk to him with no problem. We uh, typically use HF to talk to sector when we're in that area. It's it's an area that like uh, when we're talking to uh, ATC Seattle Center, they they say we may lose you for 10 minutes. Let us know if anything happens, type deal. Like it's like it's just kind of a comms dead zone, and that's true for sector as well. Even HF while we were in the valley was uh we we get a couple words in every time they checked in, but that was really it, so.
1: so no backup.
5: Yeah, that was it. No, HF, HF was all we had, so. Got it. The incident commander, I guess, could relay messages if we ne- really needed to. So that was kind of one of the things we could do. But, nice yeah, nice. luckily,
4: we have a good uh, set of presets for working with our... Uh, Interagency stuff, uh, so it was actually one of our presets, is what the instant commander was on, which was definitely helpful. We didn't have the preset; um, they're all like different transmit and receive frequencies and stuff like that. So, having a good uh, you know good relationship beforehand with our other agencies was definitely a uh, proof to help us out yeah. for comms and that night.
1: Um, Graham, from your perspective, I mean, you probably hadn't done something like this before, especially come from New Orleans, but what was your, what was your risk uh, assessment when you when you turned into that canyon? What were you thinking?
2: Yeah, since I got here, my risk assessment went went through the roof. You know, like I'd never seen fog or mountains or flown in anything like that. So this whole area was a little bit of an eye opener for me. Flying into it, going into the canyon, I was just a sightseer. You know, I was I was really just kind of taking in the sights because. I really didn't understand until, especially until we dipped in and started basically flying in a salad bowl, what it felt like to me, you know, cause we were taking tight turns and, you know, making multiple, multiple approaches and rounds to just, you know, cruise by and see these guys. And it was so quick because, you know, you'd make a pass and then immediately have to take a left turn to, you know, start the circle again. So honestly in the back, I kind of, in my head, I was thinking like, uh, I don't really know what Mm -hmm. we're going to do here. And I don't know if we're going to be able to do it because I I just never had anything to compare that to.
0: Yeah. Nice. So you guys did a couple passes Were you, um, uh, I I mean, you you guys talked about performance calcs were like kind of, they're, they're pretty good and helpful, but was it, uh, talk to us about like getting into a hover or picking orientation and stuff. Uh, so yeah, uh, that was
4: in my mind, one of the most challenging things was just trying to get into a hover. I, I, this day I have no idea how many approaches we made. Um, Once we finally found the guys um, uh, during our passes like we saw some lights about a quarter of a mile down slope from the fire that we originally thought were the firefighters and we're all, you know, at that point our confidence skyrocketed (laughs) Um, then they told us no that wasn't the right flashlights we were looking at. Um, We finally found the right flashlights and they were like on the fire line Um, so at this point like uh, like like we talked about, the canyons running north to south, and the uh, the fires on the east ridge of this canyon, and we're trying to make approaches pretty much parallel to the fire line, um, just trying to get in there. And we had, you know, we had the Todd card, which turned out it was almost spot on. By the time you know we got on scene with the CDU, you know, and we hit, I think it was like 87, 8,700 uh, pounds, is right when the CDU said we had a ten percent torque margin. Um, the challenge was just making the actual approach, like making the approach with attempts at torque margin was freaking hard. <laughs> like, I uh, There's no words I can say to describe how hard it was. Um, but so we were just kind of trying each direction, like trying to do all my hat stuff that I wanted to hat and um, doing high, low recons, wind terrain analysis, all this other crap. And it was just complicated with the updrafts and stuff from the fire and not being able to see anything was, I think the hardest part. Because um, I think the, there wasn't much wind, but the fire, the heat from the fire was kind of pulling the air from the valley um, up to the east. So the only winds I think we had were um, from west to east. But that, you know, we couldn't get the nose into the wind, so we've been flying right over the fire on our approach. Uh, so we're trying to do it without flying over the fire. Um, but every time we'd get close to that little clearing they had cut, you know, we'd run out of power enough to fly. Downslope over these trees and these canyons, and it was uh, it was not fun. My like my confidence on every approach just got lower and lower. Um, it was even harder because there was ridges on every, on the north side and the south side. There was taller ridges than the ridge we were going to. So the one I really wanted to do that put the fire out the right side so I could see everything good um, had us so high from the altitude I deemed safe at this point. We had to do like a fifteen foot hundred or fifteen hundred foot per minute rate of descent to get over that ridge to the clearing. Uh, which anybody can tell you you're gonna need a hell of a lot more than ten percent torque margin to arrest your rate of descent. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did probably in my mind, five to ten approaches with yeah. fly ups. Um For easily ten, I would say. Uh, and then, you know, obviously the fuel kept ticking down at that point. Um but we finally uh, found a good route, and it was that same route over the ridge. It was just like we got, like, you know, just belly over the trees of that tall ridge. And then um, the one thing that did work with hats um, that, you know, kind of the Coast Guard breaks you up uh, with the, your whole transition point. And uh, the emphasis on that is, like, transition point kind of puts you in too fast of a approach to your landing when you're doing confined area stuff. So I just kind of, once I got over those trees on that ridge line, like slowed way back and pretty much just did a high hover taxi you know, for the last thousand feet on final until um, we got over that um, spot and were able to get into a hover on that last one. Um, but at this point, had we lowered our bingo at this point? No. no. Okay, we're still at a 400-pound bingo. To where? Reading. To Reading.
5: Okay. That was our only fuel spot. Yeah, if you're following along. There's an airport in Weaverville. We don't have any gaps there, any agreements with, with them or there's no, I don't think there's contract fuel or anything mm-hmm. there, so um, Reading was the closest place. But yeah, we
4: got into a hover and then uh, we were pretty high, but the guys in the back can probably take a look from there. Um, what were you guys thinking at this point?
2: Well, I think we we really kind of talked about it as soon as Mr. Schmel said that he felt comfortable. He's like, you know, let's, I, during some of the passes, I know that we were like, all right, we're you know, feel we're burning down, we're burning down. All right, maybe we can see if we can get one of these guys or you know something. Let's just let's give it a shot and see if we can just get you down there, you know,
5: something or other. And
2: so I think once we finally got into an established cover and Mr. Shremel, I remember him saying the words like, "All right, this this feels good. Let's try it." So, uh, so we hooked up, and the plan was that I was going to head down to the mountain ridge. And assess the patients and see if there was at least one priority patient that we could get out of there first. Uh, so I was I was going to go down. The litter would follow behind on a second hoist, uh, and and we would do the packaging and, and try and get everything back up. But I mean, from the get go, like we kind of knew we were on a constraint. So basically, I was told, like, look, if the, if I tell you to, oh, this is the other thing too was I. Told Mister Schmel, I was like, "Well, I can just get this guy packaged up, and I'll just stay down there. Really? Uh, you guys can go land and just come back and get me." And and thankfully, he said, "Not a chance, buddy." <laughs> like yeah. you're, I was like, "You know, it'll be fine." Like in my head, I'm like, "I'll just run down this mountain <laughs> really, if it really fire starts coming. Like I'll find a way out of the way." But you know, luckily, cooler heads prevailed. Mister Schmel's like, "No, we're not. We're not going to do that." Like here's the deal: if we just get critical, you just you, I will radio down there. You hook back up, and, and you just need to come straight back up. So yeah, you got it.
1: Yeah, Graham, to just so, to give a visual to the to the listeners here. I mean, you had feet on the ground. What was the what was the angle of that that hillside, and and how close was that fire to the uh, extraction point?
2: So I'm not really good with like math or angles or. Like that, maybe but maybe I uh, tell I, you,
1: you if you're if you ski at all, maybe it's like a is it like a blue square, is a black diamond, like how steep was it?
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Am I striking Dribble out? Triple black diamond. Black
2: diamond. Yeah, no. Uh, no, I'd say like I, I would give it a solid, you know, thirty eight to forty five ish at the max. Like it there were fallen trees that I could hold on to and scramble up, but it definitely was like walking, you know, like at a 45 degree angle, like like kind of trying to scramble up a hill. Yeah, Yeah, it was definitely a good scramble if you, if anybody rock climbs. So, um, but like I said, there were fallen trees that these guys had kind of knocked down that I could kind of get up and over. So the, the first hoist, uh, I I went out the door and Tyler, you got the, uh, you got
3: the, actually you want to talk about the first hoist? you go for it. Yeah. So, you know, we were set up for the first voice. Wait, this is, uh, uh,
4: this is Tyler's first voice on a start so. Yeah, <laughs> Tyler. Right. Thanks.
3: Right. But, uh, so yeah, we were we set up, and like they were saying, Mr. Schmel said it felt good, and we were going to jump right into it. And so me and Graham were just pretty much sitting there ready, waiting for the word to go. So once he said, you know, this feels good, we were going at it. And I just remember getting Graham hooked up, low checking and put him out the door and I look down and I'm like, whoa, that's far. Definitely. <laughs> there's definitely, I knew right off the bat, I was like, this is the highest I've ever hoisted from. I was like, I don't even know if we're going to have enough cable. And right as that thought is going through my mind, Graham looks at me and he goes, watch the cable for the candy cane. And I was like, yep, I got gotcha. you." So, you know, we do a direct down and, uh, I'm getting them down. And so the firefighters had left some smaller trees, which honestly from a helicopter looked like bushes, looked like small bushes, but they were, they were about 10 foot trees still left standing. And so as I'm putting Graham down, uh, I'm looking up back and forth between Graham and the drum, just waiting to see the candy cane start. And, uh, sure enough, it starts coming out. So I just throw it out there. I'm like, we're, we're running out of cable. And Graham's not even on the ground yet, so i have so um, I can actually see Graham putting his arm forward as almost it's like, hey, it's a vertical surface, and I need some positive contact. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I start kind of conning it down and to the right to get him onto the ground and get his feet plan and get him give him some sturdy stability. And uh, so that it was a long point. I, I want to say you were. Getting hoisted down for like two, almost three minutes straight. Of just yeah, it was ride. It was eerie,
2: to be honest with you. I've I, I've been on some like long uh, high hoist over the water, but this one was this was definitely different over the uh, over the land because at a certain point, you know, it it started to get quiet. Like the further you get away from the helicopter, like the noise kind of dies down a little bit. And like it got quiet, it got super eerie, and like, all that was running through my head, and I was like, man. If these guys lose a million, I'm just going through these trees <laughs> and this one. So it would like, that's what was running yeah. through my head. I was like, this is taking forever. Like, why is this so, so long? And then finally, I felt, you know, I felt us moving towards the uh, towards the mountainside. Tyler put me right into that stinking tree. <laughs> and nice. so I just grabbed hold of that tree and, and held on to it. And, and then eventually, you know, he lowered, lowered down a little bit further and I disconnected from there. And uh, and you know gave the OK symbol and started scrambling up those trees to where they had these guys planted on the ground and started speaking with the incident commander.
1: Yeah. So,
2: uh,
1: I uh, mean, shout out, shout out ahead. to you, Tyler. I mean, I feel like so many hoists we get into, we just kind of, hey, this is what we're doing. This is our hoisting altitude. This is how we're going to make it happen. And and uh, having that thought to like, hey. I need you to go down. I'm assuming you guys went down 25, 30 feet, because you were probably already at, oh. what, 240 feet uh, a cable length almost already?
3: Oh, yeah, at least 20 to 30 feet, but, uh, you know, there, we were surrounded by trees, too, so we had to, like, kind of maneuver our way across and down, and uh, unfortunately there wasn't really any avoiding that tree for Graham. No, I was happy <laughs> about the tree. <laughs> at least it gave him something to hold on to, but I had I'd run out of cable, so pretty much what he was waiting on was us to Come to the right, avoid some trees, and then get to an opening where we could come further down and right so that he could get to the ground.
1: How, how close were you guys, uh, from the pilot's perspective, up front, like laterally to trees on the uh, cliffside? Were you getting pretty close to <laughs> since so high up? Uh,
5: Yeah. We, so, like, from my feet in the left feet, we started hoisting like treetop level, and we're talking like redwoods, right? So they're 200 something feet, like 300 feet high. Uh-huh. And that's why we had to come down, obviously. So once we started coming down, there were at least there was four or five trees right off the nose and to the right, and uh, I mean there were I don't know, they there were everywhere. There I don't know another know. another rotor another
4: rotor guy. Yeah, another rotor disk got think the clearance. I would
1: say you you guys t- t- were t- facing south. For the hoist or north facing north? Facing facing north. Okay, north. so did you have uh down into the left uh, if you lost an engine or were you guys committed at that point?
4: We, we think so, it yeah. would have been, like been full left pedal, full left
2: cyclic, mostly
4: full left. nose down, I Most think. Left. But
5: Most left, yeah, we probably could
2: have made
1: it a sweet roller coaster ride. Good luck, yeah. Graham, down there below.
2: Yeah, not for me, buddy. Yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Sorry. I just had to ask that. Keep going, guys. You're like what? below
0: the trees the or the leaves of the redwoods, out to the right side. Yeah.
1: Oh my goodness. So you yeah, get they were,
0: they were some big boys.
1: Oh yeah. So you get so Graham, you got down. Then uh, what happened after you, you disconnected?
2: Uh, so once I made my way up the hill, it's like maybe twenty five feet uh, of kind of like a little scramble up the hill, and they had both both guys uh, on backboards and covered with these Mylar blankets but for whatever reason as soon as I walked up on them is when like the rotor wash must have hit and just blew the blankets right off the top of these guys they had them all packaged up real pretty like but just blew these blankets all the way up the hill awesome and so you know that's fine I had to do an assessment anyway so I started looking them over I'm talking to the uh, instant commander and I'm like hey listen so who's, who's uh, your first priority like because I might only be able to get one personnel right now he's like, this guy. And it was going to be, uh, it was going to be the head and neck, uh, patient because apparently he had lost consciousness and was in and out. So like, all right, cool. Not a problem. So I was only able to grab like quick, a quick assessment before, uh, radioing up to these guys and saying, all right, we're, we're ready to go. I I didn't want to spend any more time down there than obviously we needed to. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So I radioed up ready for the litter, you know, send it on down. And so Tyler started a, uh, a, a a trail line on that litter, right? Or did you do that? Yeah. No, we didn't
3: have time. Okay, we, so were, were, we, were, like, so we were so out of gas yeah. that we were like, "We'll give it our best shot." Yeah, we started putting the litter down and got about halfway down. Yeah, and we're like, "This we're out of time." And then you're like, "This isn't gonna work," and right. so we just aborted the
2: hoist. And, yeah, so and that's, that's, exactly. So that so while I was down there and and. And speaking to this guy, I was like, all right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pack this guy up. I'm going to take him, and then we're going to head out. We'll probably come back for uh, the other patient later. We just got to see what's going on. So um, once we once we got going and I saw the litter coming down, it just started taking this really big swing, like, like, a, like a big, giant loop underneath. I could tell, like, the rotor wash caught it, and it started making, like, a real big loop underneath. And just the further it came down, the bigger that loop got. And it started – swinging a lot closer to the trees than I was comfortable with. Mm. So I got on the radio and I guess these guys were already talking about it. Uh, but I was like, Hey, this isn't going to work like that. That thing's getting way too close to the trees and it's just swinging pretty crazy. So, um, as soon as, and no long, no uh, sooner than had I said that the litter went back up and I think Mr. Owenby got on the radio. And was like, yeah, the bear hook's coming down and you need to get on it. We're out of gas. And so, Really, that's that's exactly what happened. They brought the litter back up, and I looked over to the instant commander and I told him I was like, "Listen, we're too heavy, uh, and we're running out of gas." I was like, "We're going to go, and they're going to pick me up, and we're going to land somewhere, and we're going to come up with a new plan, and uh, and have to come back." And he's like, "Okay, you got it." And no, you know, no sooner than I said that, the hook came down, and I hooked back up and was all the way up.
1: Nice. Um, uh, Well, we really haven't heard too much from you, Adam. What, what was it like sitting left seat on, uh, this whole experience?
5: Uh, you know, like, like I said, it was my first case. Um, so maybe I just didn't know any better. Uh, or maybe Derek's just that good. I, I don't know. I honestly thought everything was going really well. Nice. Um, <laughs> no, but it was like, like I said, being in the Canyon there and then more, more or less surrounded on three sides by trees and or fire, obviously, uh, Seemed pretty unique, I would say. Yeah, It, it was uh, a lot going
0: on. Yeah, we don't so. train that at HC.
1: No, I, I remember my first case, and uh, I was flying with a Blake McKinney, who's been flying for a long time, and I didn't know where we were until we were hovering over the person up in the northern part of San Francisco Bay, so I, I hear you, man. It's just I'm just, you're just there sometimes.
0: Yep. 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 All right. Uh, Shakes, we got any other? So... Uh, I'm just like trying to put myself there. It sounds, it sounds pretty gnarly. I know. Same,
1: same I think here, I'd be man. like, Hey
0: guys, let's just go home.
1: Yeah. Like, uh, do you guys really want to do this? Yeah. Um, well that's awesome. First attempt you pick up Graham, um, where are we headed?
5: Yeah. So I guess also when we were, as we are all this was unfolding, we were taking bingo down, um, incrementally. I think we got down to what 300 or so. And, uh, we're, going to Redding, like we said, because mm-hmm. um, that was the closest place. So
1: Easy flight there, or are you guys bouncing over mountains the whole time?
5: I'm sorry, say again?
1: Oh, was it, is it a pretty easy transit down to Redding, or are you guys kind of threading through some canyons and, and picking your way down there? Uh,
5: I mean, it's mountainous the whole way, but it's, the yeah. transit between Arcata and uh, Redding is one that we do fairly frequently. Again, not at night, but um, okay. it's, it's still mountainous. Until you get into the valley there where Reading is.
4: Yeah, we, okay. we climbed up enough that we didn't have to um, avoid canyons and ridges and stuff like that.
0: Head to the for the first two thirds of the bag again. Yeah. So. Yeah, uh, Derek.
4: Yeah, it was, it was just a weird feeling going to Reading. It's like 15, 20 minutes to Reading. And you just feel like this, I don't know, it was weird in the aircraft. Like we weren't, you know, obviously going to see each other really, but you just tell everybody felt a little bit, um uh, Downtrodden, off right where it or is. Deflated, For deflated. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, we kind of started talking about what we could have done better, and then just kind of decided to focus on landing and uh, coming up with a new plan. Honestly, like I fully expected to land in Reading and our command probably not let us go back. But I didn't really want to bring that up in the plane, mm-hmm. um, just because of you know. I just figured as soon as I told them we weren't able to host anybody, like they would be like, "All right, this is too risky." you're not, you're not going to be able to do it. Uh, go ahead and just stay the night ready type of a deal. Uh, but yeah, we, uh, I kind of just focused on getting to Redding. Um, command center did a great job getting us gas. Uh, we're having a fuel team ready for us in reading and landed there and shut down and, um, started, uh, coming up with a new plan after that.
1: Yeah. Uh, just quick backtrack cause I know Adam downplayed himself a little bit, but, uh, how did Adam do for you, Derek, as far as uh, safety pilot?
4: Uh, he was awesome like like I said from you know start to finish like he without any task he did all the performance planning um, and then getting into the canyon I touched on it a little bit but um, I kind of if I would have talked about it too long we would have been here too long again but yeah he definitely uh, did a awesome job backing me up um, before we started making those approaches you know while we were doing the approaches and then you know once we got pretty much once we started making approaches like my sole preoccupation was, trying not to kill everybody. Uh, So he, um, in essence, was doing all the aircraft commander um, PIC type duties from the left seat on his very first SAR case. So um, yeah, I can't say enough good things about Adam and Tyler and Graham.
5: And honestly, coming straight from T course, like you guys train us up to be good safety pilots. And and when I say that every, everything seemed like it was going good, I guess it was like, we had been put in that position to, you know, get everything ready and, think on our feet and you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think
1: overall training program
5: everywhere really kind of set everybody up for success. So,
1: yeah, thanks for the shout out. All right, listeners. Uh, so that's, that's halfway through our story with that, uh, that crew from Humboldt Bay. Uh, again, that was Derek and Adam up front and then uh, Graham as the rescue swimmer and Tyler as a flight mech. Uh, pretty, pretty heroin case, uh, pretty difficult uh, situation uh, and, and, kind of an envelope that we don't normally fly in. So um, we're on deck at Reading. So all those listeners out there, whether you be a pilot, co-pilot, flight mech, rescue swimmer, just think about where you go from here. So how are you going to execute this case? Are you going to go back? Are you going to talk with your ops boss? Are you going to say, hey, this this isn't for us tonight? Or, you know, I think we can make this happen. So, you know, how do, how do we execute this case? Uh, is the risk uh, worth the uh, gain of, of rescuing these two firefighters um, and then how do you prepare for something like this on uh, that RT two that you do every week or that RT four that you do every week? How do you push yourself so that you are ready for something that you really can't prepare for? Like how many people do night for its surface out there? Not that many. And it's, and it's when you actually have that first case. So I'd like you guys to think about that, we'll bring back the uh, second half of this story and you'll, you'll get some resolution from, from how this crew did it. And, uh, for all those senior leadership out there, you know, how do you how do you work through this case as an ops boss, uh, you know, exo-CO taking ops, uh, taking CO calls? Um, how much leash do you give your crews? How much training do you do to prepare them for something like this? All right, thanks for listening uh, to this episode of the podcast. We really appreciate uh, you guys here. And uh, and thanks again to the humble crew for joining us tonight.
0: Gotta take every
1: So, you know, how do, how do we execute this case? Uh, is the risk uh, worth the uh, gain of, of rescuing these two firefighters? Um, and then how do you prepare for something like this? On uh, That RT2 that you do every week or that RT4 that you do every week, how do you push yourself so that you are ready for something that you really can't prepare for? Like how many people do night for a service out there? Not that many, and it's, and it's when you actually have that first case. So. I'd like you guys to think about that. We'll bring back the uh, second half of this story, and you'll you'll get some resolution from from how this crew did it. And uh, for all those senior leadership out there, you know how do you how do you work through this case as an ops boss? Uh, you know, ex CEO taking ops uh, taking CEO calls. Um, how much leash do you give your crews? How much training do you do to prepare them for something like this? All right, thanks for listening uh, to this episode of the podcast. We really appreciate uh, you guys here, and uh, and thanks again to the humble crew for joining us tonight.
0: Gotta take every chance to